coming up on Tech Nation with the recent passing of Terry Jones, a co-creator of Monty Python's Flying Circus. We are re-airing our 1997 interview, which he shared with none other than his dear friend and collaborator, best known to you as Douglas Adams, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Then on Biotech Nation, we focus on conditions of the kidney. Riata Pharmaceuticals is looking at Alport syndrome, keeping people in their mid-20s off dialysis, while Serta Therapeutics is working on preventing organ fibrosis. First candidate, the kidney. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. When I started reading his book, I realized that I didn't really understand popularity, as in the nature of popularity, its very definition. So I asked him, what is popularity? Mm, We're starting with the easy ones. Oh, Um, good. (laughs) (laughs) What is popularity is a great question. I think you can break it down into two categories. The first category would be attention. It's what we pay attention to. But the second category is appeal. It's what we like. It's what we love. And we don't always like and love that which we pay attention to. I think about this in terms of TV ratings. Sometimes the shows with the highest TV ratings are sometimes hate-watched. People watch that show. uh, They (laughs) tune in. But they despise the thing that they're looking at, uh, whether it's the news or sometimes even a reality show. And so popularity isn't just what we pay attention to. It's also what we love. And this is a book that's very much about the psychology of appeal, the psychology of why we like what we like. But it's also about the economic markets that sometimes determine that which we pay attention to. So I try to keep both in mind. Well, certainly the economic markets will at some point create popularity so that the economics can flow. And at other times, they chase the popularity Mm. so that they can monetize it. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I think that, for example, in the history of the news industry, uh, we've gone from a period of relative scarcity in the middle of the 20th century. You had a handful of television stations and radio stations that had the power to reach tens of millions of people. But now the power of broadcast is democratized, and there are Twitter accounts and news feeds and Facebook pages, et cetera, et cetera, that have the power to essentially reach just as many people. And so it's not so much that we live in a purely viral world where everything is social and it's all one-to-one and one-to-two shares, but rather we live in a world where the power of broadcast has been democratized. And so now you have individuals whose powers of attention and powers of appeal, both sides of popularity, uh, are as large as some legacy media institutions. And then you tell us, don't listen to this, it's gone viral. There's nothing viral about it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most fun chapters to write, actually, was the chapter called The Viral Myth. I think what's happened uh, these days is that when something gets big out of nowhere, we say, oh, that's gone viral. We default to saying this. 
But viral has a very specific meaning in epidemiology. It means that I get you sick and you get two people sick and they get two people sick each. And this disease spreads over many, many, many generations of intimate shares. But there's another way that information spreads, and we're participating in it right now. It's a single source of news being broadcast to many people at once. Uh, The Super Bowl, for example, is a very famous, well-known broadcast. Nobody says of an advertisement in the Super Bowl, oh, my God, that ad went viral in the Super Bowl. No, it was very clearly broadcast to 115 million people at once. So the question, I think, for people who are interested in popularity is, does information truly go viral or does the, do the biggest broadcast determine popularity? And when data scientists now can actually study the spread of a Twitter post or a Facebook post or a viral YouTube video, it turns out that when you look at that information cascade, that map of the idea catching on, it looks much more like a series of broadcasts with sort of social tendrils than it looks like a pure disease spreading. So I would like us to sort of shift the way that we talk about the spread of information online from purely viral to broadcasts that we don't always see. And I call them dark Broadcasts, And I think we live in a world that is dominated by dark broadcasts. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. He's still at The Atlantic, but you might also catch him doing news analysis on NPR's national afternoon show, Here and Now. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, with the passing of Terry Jones of Monty Python fame, we're re-airing our 1997 interview, which he shared with Douglas Adams, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Then on Biotech Nation, new approaches to treating conditions of the kidney. Riata Pharmaceuticals is working on Alport Syndrome to keep patients in their mid-20s off dialysis, while Certa Therapeutics has chosen to work on scarring in the kidney as its first candidate preventing organ fibrosis. In 1997, while the Internet and the World Wide Web was coming together, suddenly books were being published with a companion CD, often called a CD-ROM. This could be a reading of the book, expanded information, or even an interactive game. Terry Jones and Douglas Adams collaborated on just such an enterprise. In advance, let me just state, I have never been less in charge of an interview as I was that day. I guess it sort of started off with this uh, CD-ROM that I wanted to do, um, and I've been working on for the last couple of years, called Starship Titanic. And um, suddenly we realized, of course, there had to be a novel to go with it. And I, th- there wasn't time for me to do both, to work on the on the CD-ROM and the novel, because the publisher said they've got to be out at the same time. Starship Titanic. Starship Titanic. Oh, did Starship. I, you you only said it say? once. You only said it once. Oh, OK. No, we have to say it an awful lot of times. Yeah, I think we you've been up. trained. You've been yeah. trained in the media. This <laughs> is delightful. <laughs> Publishers have given us a quota of Starship Titanic. Titanic. Starship Titanic. Starship Titanic. We have to say Starship Titanic. Mm. Uh, 
so many times. ST, ST, ST. No, it has to be. No, Starship Titanic is the thing we actually have to say. ST won't be talking about how the Starship Titanic CD-ROM happened. And so suddenly, you know, there's got to be the novel as well. And I Douglas, this is Douglas talking. Douglas about Starship Titanic. Yes, yes. And so there wasn't actually time for me to do both, and I'd sort of signed up to do the CD-ROM. And Terry, who's who's a very old friend, in fact, Terry and I've been looking for something to collaborate on other than dinner uh, for, for sort of a couple of years. We decades, have done quite a few really good dinners, but um, unfortunately, there's not much money in them. Anyway, so Terry was down to play the parrot. We are a part of a semi-deranged parrot in the CD-ROM. He's right. And uh, so he came around one day, you know, sort of to discuss the character and you know how the you know the character's motivation and, and, and he's mostly millet seed. And uh, a, a parrot prepares. So he looked at all the stuff we've been doing for the CD-ROM and all the sort of graphics and animation and said, "Oh, this is great." Is there anything else I can do? And I says, "Yeah, you want to write a novel?" And he said, "Yeah, okay." And he only agreed to do it provided he could do it in the nude. Yes, this is true. There's well, a picture of you on the back cover. Uh, in the nude. Yes, but it only yeah, captures it. part of you. Yes. No, I've, I've been. I'm sort of in the nude, but with clothes on, aren't I? I see. I see. Yeah. I but he, um, you see, when Terry is, I mean, Terry is obviously you know one of the best known people in in the entire universe, and, and oddly enough, I mean, his bottom is only slightly less well known than his face, <laughs> because uh, I mean, although he um, he only actually removes his kit when it's absolutely strictly artistically necessary, such as the nature of his artistic. This is radio. Oh, turns out, and I have to tell everybody, you're mm. both fully clothed. Oh. Oh, I thought I. I have my reputation in reverse. My reputation to protect. You guys are on your own. But yes, listeners, take no notice of what Ma is saying. It's not true. We both not are true? stark naked. Yeah. I know. I'm speechless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he, uh, no, you think of him sort of playing playing the organ at the beginning. He was a ma- ma- nude man playing organ at the beginning of Python. Then he was nude man in bed with Carol Cleveland. And then he actually there was a when he was doing a uh, Life of Bran. Oh um, yes, I was I was playing the hermit in the hole. Who's uh, he hasn't spoken for eighteen years or something? And Brian jumps in the hole when he's running away from people and lands on the hermit's foot. And the hermit says, "Ow!" And then says, "Oh damn, damn! I haven't spoken for eighteen years. Damn!" <laughs> and Brian's saying, "Oh shh!" And the hermit says, "No, it doesn't matter now. I can, I've spoken. I can laugh." No. Um, anyway, I, but the thing was, I was doing this with nothing on because hermits in holes tend to have nothing on, except for a large beard that had been uh, that had been negotiated by your agent. No. Hmm? <laughs> no, no, it was just the you wanted design. to. Oh, I see. Design, I see. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so this beard was toupee taped to one portion of my anatomy, mm-hmm. um, which will remain silent. I mean. Because it can't speak, and um, I was directing. I was doing my bits early on, and, and by the end of the day, we had these sort of Tunisian crowds, about two hundred people here, and I was sort of directing them, telling them to do this. And Michael Palin came up behind me and said, "You do know, Terry, that you're stark naked, don't you?" <laughs> I think it's probably. One of the few times when the entire cast and crew have been clothed, but the director has been naked. <laughs> Your remarkable poise. Remark- uh, I just no, I just forgot. You get so engrossed when you're directing something. I would like to say I'm very thankful to Douglas, though. I'd like to say that um, Douglas is the only person in the world who realised that um, the, the Virgin Mandy, who in the life of Brian, in Monty Python's life of Brian, is Brian's mother. Uh, she's the one that goes, he's not a messiah, he's a very naughty boy. And... Uh, uh, in fact, Douglas is the only person to realise that she is, in fact, a parrot. 
And uh, that's why he asked me to play the parrot in the CD in, in Starship Titanic. We got oh, it in. Starship Titanic. Sure. Yes, yes, Starship Titanic. Well, you know, when and you were working also... on the CD Star- Starship Titanic, yes, I, I can even mispronounce it for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, then <laughs> what I love is that you, here you are developing the CD-ROM yeah. game, whatever you want to call it. And um, they say, oh, no, no, there must be a novel to come out at the same time. Yeah. Now, he's done with the novel, but you're still working on the uh, CD-ROM. Yes, I know. <laughs> this is very funny. You know, the publisher said, oh, no, it's very, very important. A novel's got to come out exactly the same time as the CD-ROM. This is vitally, vitally important. So then when it turns out that uh, the CD-ROM, like every CD-ROM in history, uh, is now going to be several months late, uh, suddenly the publisher says, oh, no, it's fine, fine if they don't come out at the same time. No, we'll bring out the, pub, the, the novel first. The whole basis of this, where I went in to do the power, they always said, look, we've got, to, we've got to do this novel by in five weeks. They have to have it by July the 7th, you know. And so it became this great thing. This was this absolute cutoff date of five weeks that we had to get the novel out. <laughs> You're listening to Tech Nation, Americans and Technology. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. Terry's Both fully clothed. Fully clothed. Mm-hmm. Terry's new novel, Douglas Adams' Starship Titanic, is based on Douglas's CD-ROM game of the same name. We, oh. we now realize, of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny the sort of <laughs> positions you sort of find yourself in. It's perfectly logical how you got there. But when you look at where you are, you realize it's absurd. You know, because the fact that it's called Douglas Adams's uh, Starship Titanic, a novel by Terry Jones, it would be much simpler to call it Starship Titanic by Douglas Adams and Terry Jones. It would be much simpler. But why, but, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Well, it's just, it's just nobody thought of it. It's, it's the route by which you get somewhere, you know. Uh, and you suddenly, as I say, you suddenly realize once you see where you are, there would be a much simpler way of being here. Well, I have so, to admit, you know, I've never so. seen it structured quite like this before. Yeah, well, no, it's. Um, well, I think the publishers wanted Douglas's name very big. You see. <laughs> well, you know now. Now, now let's get down to the story here because yeah, yeah. I, I'm reading this and there are all these names. There's no like guide to how to pronounce them like Leovinus. L- Leovinus. Leovinus. Now he's the galaxy's greatest architect, sculptor, mathematical genius, and world-class garnisher and canopy arranger. <laughs> and of course, he's in love with Titania from the Starship Titanic. Because he programmed her to be. Well, oh. She's in love with him because he very. Oh, yes, I beg your pardon. Yes, she's in love with him he's, because he's, he programmed he's her. He's falling. Be. He's. I think, well, I think but by Leovinus, the end, well, I don't want to give anything oh, away. Well, I think by the end, I mean, the thing is, I think Leovinus realized that he really can't love anybody but himself, really. That's the trouble with mm. Leovinus. And uh, so he can just about love something that he's created. But he's far too grand to be able to actually love but anyone. There's lots of other characters. Oh, oh yes, yes. Uh, most, most of whose names are completely unpronounceable. <laughs> oh, can I pronounce some of these? The. Or is it the? The Askin Corporals. Hold on. <laughs> you go and talk about something else while I look, find them. Well, actually, one of the things, while, while, while Terry's looking for that, I'll say the. Um, I mean the, Why uh, did I prepare any questions? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the design. And no, I, we'll I, ask you a few questions. I can boast about design because I didn't have anything to do with it. Because uh, we, we had these sort of great uh, designers called Oscar Ciccioni and Isabel Molina to do what this ship would actually look like. And we sort of said, it's got to look not at all like Starship Enterprise or anything like this, because it's this huge floating cruise liner that's going to be the most fabulous, stupendous, extraordinary cruise liner ever launched, ever launched in the in galaxy. In outer and space. Course, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, of course, it, on its maiden voyage, it crashes uh, actually into your home, which is how you become involved. This so is we on said, the CD-ROM. On the CD-ROM, yeah, which will not, it isn't quite out yet, uh, but it will be soon. <laughs> but the plane um, currently is, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so the design inside, I mean, looks like a sort of mixture between... Um, the Queen Mary and uh, the Chrysler Building and Tutankhamun's Tomb and Venice. 
and it's just the most extraordinary sort of. And, and uh, Terry's ter- ter- now ready with the list of. Uh, oh, the list of. No, no, <laughs> I have to say the design of the Starship Titanic. I mean, that's really what sort of got me going on. I looked at it and thought, wow, this is a, there's a movie here, guys. Oh, <laughs> these are the net. Yes, I just, I just wanted, to, wanted to read the names of the, the oh, Yasikans. These are the Yasikans who do all the building, you see. And uh, and they're Captain Bolfast, who's a very proper, very nice man. And uh, uh, that one of the human characters, Nettie, comes in and says, hi, everybody. Suppose we all introduce ourselves. She doesn't realise what she's saying at this point. I'm Nettie. Captain Bolfast at your service, said Bolfast, springing to attention. And these are Corporals Yagtak, Edinbop, Regulating, Dezembo, Luntpaga, Forzab, Kakit, Zimwidi, Dutaprat, Kassintinka, Riggipittal, Purs and Hacken, Roof Cleetop, Spangler Widden, Buke Hammerdorf, Bunsleywater, Brudel Hampton, Hazim Waddle, Unctim Potter, Gol Hollywall, Dinsey Newt, Tittleoft, Cosy We Whip, One Cockadill, Urkel Hammerdrat, Inchby Wiglet, Sammy Liftoft, Buke Willie Nudget, he's a half cousin by marriage of Buke Hammerdorf. Hi, Nettie, said one of the Eskin invaders. Barnes of Butte, continue Bolfast, Bol- Bol- Big Halliwiller, Menzi Porton, Itkip, Harloff Raider, Pulligit, Beekle Memsdork, Apple Saft, Buckhamster, Rinton Eagle Bun, Booten Tunk, Bootle Hamster, Sun Creedle, Cattlebird. Look, I hate to interrupt <laughs> to enter the journalist. Sorry. Right, the magic of radio, of course, is some, some people will have tuned in halfway in. <laughs> <laughs> that Latvian station again. <laughs> we have to be careful. Well, you know. It just occurred to me, and one of the things you do when you're sort of uh, writing a book, particularly this has been yeah. a collaboration, and when I was sort of doing the storyline, and I made it, it netty, I mean, the reason I made it netty was because I knew the person it ought to be, yeah. and it was actually somebody called Nettie, and it's something that is now in the book as Nettie, Nettie yeah. and she will spot it. No, I don't know. No, 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 but I'll, I'll have a lot of explaining hands, to do. I mean, I have to say, now, all through my life, men, boyfriends, have given me copies of your books, Douglas. I mean, it just is, I I was like, why are you guys giving me another copy of this book? And then, about a year ago, my 14-year-old son rolls home with with Hitchhiker, and he's like, this is the greatest book, and I'm like, what is it with you guys? But of course, then you turn over Nettie to Terry, who starts calling her Nighty. (laughs) So, it's like, it's like, for those of you who are familiar with Douglas's books, it's sort of like that with silliness and sex. Uh, Wouldn't you call that the the novel we have? Because I didn't notice the Sex, actually. It was only the, uh, when I gave it. Well, you the, were nude. Well, I was, I was nude at the time. I think I'd noticed more. Uh, but I gave it to the uh, publishers and they said, well, we like it, but can you tone down the naughty bits? I, so I this is toned down. <laughs> toned down. I'll tell you what, it's quite at the edge of the envelope for this show. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Terry does write a little bit naughtier than I do. But I tell you, I couldn't put it down. No. <laughs> and I won't ask And you enjoyed the book as well, yes. I love the book very much. Absolutely. But you know, this one of the things that I have to say is that when we started out with CD-ROMs, you know, you do a book and then like, oh, suddenly we could do CD-ROMs and you add it on. These are two different media. Well, this is really a CD-ROM, actually. The book we're talking about the book, but it's really started as a CD-ROM. I mean, it started there, but I mean, you went all down one road, and then how did you? I mean, when you were changing storylines, which I have to believe Terry, you might have mm. changed a storyline or two. Have you tried to converge? Well, no, there wasn't really time, you see. What, what happened was um, I went in and sort of looked at the, the CD-ROM, saw the designs and everything, and then Douglas uh, gave me his um, treatment for the film. There was about a sort of 20-page treatment for film. So he had the story there and characters, and there was the landscape. And then, you know, there was five weeks, so there was no time to do anything. To ask him <laughs> what he meant anyone was to do. Well, no, I, and there were a few moments when I said, look, if for the story we'll have to change this, or, or what do you think should happen here or something. But, but generally it was just like a great crib 
sheet. You know, if somebody gives you a school essay and you've got, you sit there writing it, and then there's a, you get stuck. You think, oh, what do I do next? You look, look it up, and there it is in the in the film treatment. It was, that, but I think I, it, took, it took a while before Terry realised I actually meant when I said uh, it doesn't have to be like the game at all. You don't have to sort of stick to it. Uh, I mean, in fact, when I was doing hitchhiking, you know, I'd go from sort of radio to television to sort of books yeah. and so on, and each one was completely different, and and people would go wild trying to resolve them all and trying to sort of say, well, what well, what does he mean by this change here? And it wasn't. It just you know some things work well in one medium and some yeah. in another. And when you come to do it a second time or uh, or another version, you just don't want to do it yeah. the same again. So it just changes. Well, I, so in fact, there was um, reading the book would be of absolutely no help to you whatsoever when it comes <laughs> to playing the game. To the test. Well, I, when I was writing it, I mean, I had a sort of I had a script of the what they call a script of the CD-ROM game, which is page after page of unintelligible stuff. And uh, <laughs> well, I, I see that in the novel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. So you just read out the list of Yasaka and Corporal, and you're talking was, to me that about That was the only, that was the only section I understood. I don't know. Oh, can we also mention www.starshiptitanic.com? Yes. Thank you. Why don't you mention that? Okay, I will. www.starshiptitanic.com. Excellent. Mentioned, Douglas. Excellent. Mentioned. What, if one had that information and access to the internet, yeah. what would one get? Uh, the website is, is basically a sort of huge parody of what happens when you try to sort of book a holiday or whatever. Uh, I mean, the great thing, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful experience actually, because the, um, uh, the great thing about the website we found is, you know, you know we get you know, thousands and thousands of hits. I mean, everybody also says, oh, I got tens of thousands. Don't only, whatever it's it only and three you, and, unemployed and people. You know that. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, we've been able to sort of track them, and people are spending about an hour on, on the website at a time. We, and that is unheard of. That uh, is unheard of. I, I should also add in here that Douglas has, on the website, he's sold about, I don't know, 100 copies of uh, a book that he hasn't written yet. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Which I think is, must be a first. Like <laughs> <laughs> You've got the title. And there's this, uh... Yeah, this, is, yes. this is Amazon.com. We went to see the guys at Amazon.com yeah. a couple of days ago. Now, there was a book of mine that I started uh, about three or four years ago called The Salmon of Doubt. And I got about halfway through it and realized it wasn't working. And, and it just I hit the wall with it. So I went on to do something else. But meanwhile, it had been announced at some point. So everybody is the expectation of this book the whole time. And at Amazon.com, they now say they've got hundreds of orders for it. They've even got reviews of it. <laughs> and I said, well, if you could send me a copy, I can copy it out. You know? Send me the <laughs> review and we'll publishers. see if we can make it. I mean, this is just, I have I to mean, say. this is a really virtual book. <laughs> I'm just in, I'm just in you know, complete shock here. My guests today are Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. You may well remember Douglas Adams as the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Terry Jones from his numerous film, television, and publishing credits, including directing the film Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. I'm Moira Gunn, and you're listening to Tech Nation. You really are listening to Tech Nation, Americans and technology, and now you know what happens when Monty Python meets technology. <laughs> it's we, just incredible. We are fully clothed, honestly. We're still fully clothed. Terry, are you going to make a movie tongue, out of yeah. this? Are you going to make a movie? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's Douglas's property, so I think, you know... Well, I, I think it'd be a great thing yeah, to do, and we're going to wait till the sort of... Uh, I mean. We're now so much under the gun to get the CD-ROM finished, you know, sort of concentrate on trying to sort of uh, get a movie out of get it once that. that's done. I think it would need, you know, uh, you'd have to look very, you know, at the whole, again, you know, a movie is different from a novel and you'd have to look closely at the You story. might be better off just taking the website and the novel and the CD-ROM and then just writing a whole new sc- screenplay with oh, yeah, all yeah. those people the, and, yeah. and, oh, exactly and what that, Terry know, cause, thinks cause up in the mood while he's directing the yeah. movies. Each medium just works very differently than any other yeah. medium. So, I mean, rather than sort of, you know, going to the, you know, the script either of the, uh, of the game or the, you know, the manuscript of the novel and saying, OK, well, let's, let's somehow sort of wrest this into a movie. And you just start again. Say, yeah, well, here's, again. here's the basic situation. Here are some key elements that we 
would like to sort of go with and yeah. how, how does that and just use what works really, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course I, I'm given all this information and Terry I was constantly in the course of this uh, preparation uh, given something they kept saying in 1981 you wrote an academic book called Chaucer's Knight which is always described as controversial but I can't find out what's controversial about it was it true was it a put on was it a real academic book yes no no it is it's actually um... <laughs> and wh- why did why was it controversial well it was controversial because it was sort of up- upending sort of it was iconoclastic if you know what I mean, Ooh. sort of the breaking of icons, because um, Chaucer's Knight is one of the pilgrims on the, uh, in the Canterbury Tales, and uh, it's a, the, the prologue to the Canterbury Tales. It's a gallery of portraits of uh, these pilgrims who are going to Canterbury, who each tell tales, uh, and they're basically all satirical portraits. Except it's always thought that three of them aren't: that the the knight, the ploughman, and the parson are, are not satirical. And what I was saying in my book was that actually, if you really look at the the knight's career, it's a portrait of a mercenary, not of a perfect gentle knight. And so you, the trouble is, you see, like in the academic world, you've got all these academics who've been writing reams and reams and material about Chaucer's knight, uh, assuming that he is a very perfect gentle knight, and that you have to take everything at face value. And so if you say, well, actually, he's a mercenary, it's quite obvious from his career that's what he is. There's something else going on here. It's ironic. Honor, value. How much are you paying uh, me? Yeah. Well, I mean, the curious thing about this is it it takes somebody who's actually a comedy writer to go along and look at the thing and say, this guy's writing jokes here, and you fail to spot them. (laughs) You know, because, you know, if you're a comedy writer, you you, you just see what's going on, you see. And the thing is, the thing about The Knight's Tale is is, if if you come across it, you know, as a school kid, it it seems, you know, next to the wife of Bath's Tale and and, and all the others, it just seems rather sort of dull and boring uh, because we're just saying this guy is so good. Uh, I I mean, you need to understand, I guess, some of the specific references. I mean, if you translate it to sort of the 20th century, if you said somebody acquitted themselves very well in in, in the Second World War, you would know, well, he was probably a hero. On the other hand, if you said he acquitted himself very well in Angola, you think, oh, now what's the point you're making here? You know, it's a different kind of a thing. And you kind of need to be A, to pick up on that, but B, just you just know the rhythm and structure of jokes, and you suddenly realise that Chaucer really hates this guy. And because he he really hates him, and because everybody would know that he would hate him, you can be as nice as pie about him, and it just makes the joke richer. And also like comedy, where you hold it up, and everybody looks at it and said, yes, it's a ball, and then you describe it as something different, and uh, they realize that, uh, you know, they're just not looking at it right, uh, so uh, I can, or in that way, yeah, so I can, yeah. I can see that. So that was your academic foray. Yeah, huh? so I mean, it's, t- it's sort of taking people a long time to come around to it, but, uh, but generally people aren't coming around to it a bit. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm, actually I'm sort of going to the Lansdowne next August, I'm going to the Chaucer Congress, which happens every three years or something, and uh, it's in Paris this year. And, but uh, they told you where it was, and you they can told go. Where it was. So, <laughs> it's not all that controversial. Kind of <laughs> speaking told me which door to, to go in there. <laughs> no. now, now, Douglas, tell me. Now, what is the Digital Village? Is that something you started? Yeah, it's it's a company uh, in England uh, that I started with a few like-minded friends. Um, now, when I started out, uh, you know, I was writing, uh, you know, radio and television and stage and a book and a computer game and all sorts of different things. And I just loved sort of moving from one medium to another. And people always tell me, you know, you think the other man's grass is always greener. Well, the thing is it is uh, you know you like to, you, you, you like to keep on the move and you like to sort of keep on sort of learning things and then you know out of all this stuff uh, emerged this book which was then such a sort of big hit that it suddenly determined that the next thing I had to do was another book and then after that another book and a sort of decade or so this went by and I began to think hang on this isn't what I signed up for I'm sitting in a room typing all day and I, I really you know, no I'm, fun yeah it's, it's no fun and I want to get back to doing a range of different things but the point was you know if I wanted to go and do you know a television program or a CD-ROM you'd have to 
go and find somebody else's production company and all that kind of stuff. So um, I thought, well, you know, let, let's have my own infrastructure. Let's get together with a sort of bunch of people. So this is what we've done. It created the Digital Village. And the whole structure of it is sort of quite sort of cleverly worked out because the thing is, the main thing we want to do is to be online, is to be a big sort of online entertainment and information company. Uh, now, every, you know, the world and his wife's got a website. How do you get people to go? First of all, you've got to do stuff that's good. Now, you can't prescribe that any more than you can prescribe, you know, write a good book or write a good novel. You're just going to do the best, best you damn well can. But the other thing is you've got to get people to go there. So to do that, you've got to do a lot of projects in the outside world. So that's that I now suddenly you know, have the license and the sort of structure to say, OK, now I want to do a CD-ROM, now I want to do a movie, now I want to do this, now I want to do a book. And each of those will then have a sort of big presence on the web, and each of those things sort of drives people you know, to the web. So And the so expectation the has changed in that people know that if there's anything big, Whatever media comes out of, yeah. you know you can find it on the web. Yeah. And but that's do, pretty recent. to do good stuff about it on the web. Court judgments, thing. everything. You know, it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a fascinating place. court judgments. <laughs> You've been listening to our 1997 interview with Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio and other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show, it's Biotech Nation and work on various conditions of the kidney. We hear from two firms, each looking to help in a different way. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation and our 1997 interview with Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. Now, in the CD room, there's the, I think it may be the aliens you were talking about. These are the aliens that attack you and then repair your ship before they attack again. <laughs> yes. I love this sort of cleaning up after themselves. It's just lovely. Now, are they in the CD room? Uh, no, they're not. No, they're, 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 they're in the film team. Though. They're in the film. The film. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the, the thing is, a lot of the characters in the in in, in the book are there to fill Space. what is actually your role. No, <laughs> no, it's to fill your in, in the CD-ROM. All these things oh, happen to you, um, but in in the book, uh, you have to then put put a lot more characters in because they are the people to whom this happens. Um, 
the um, so, so so the CD-ROM is very very different. But there there is a sort of dramatic thing we've sort of done with it, which is um, you know it, it, it's full of all these sort of deranged and semi-functional robots, each of which. You can go up to, and you can interrogate them, question them, tell them to do things, but just by sort of typing in things, and they will answer you. They will answer you, you know, in character, in context, uh, absolutely appropriately or nearly absolutely appropriately to what you said and asked. And we've, uh, this has been the sort of main thing that we've done is creating this sort of uh, this um, the, this language engine, and and uh, to, to back it up, you know, we we we've recorded hours and hours, about twelve hours so far, little snippets of dialogue, each of which get us sort of assembled on the fly. Speaking as a parrot, it was absolutely exhausting recording <laughs> these hours and hours. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and totally unintelligible lines. Yeah. Because they're, they're all just tiny little sort of snippets of lines, or you having to re- read long, long lists of the species of other birds that, Actually, that, that, I did, that you hated. I, mean, I did have to strip off. Yes, you did because you were getting so hot, and so hot in the booth. I'm, but I only had my clothes. I had to <laughs> the CD-ROM is going to take off, Terry. He better have his own little place on your website. A big one. We should Terry should have his own little place well, on your oh, website. Oh yes, actually, well, maybe a, 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 a parrot page, a parrot pa- page. Parrot dropping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I think it's one thing. You know, there is a difference between some people say, "Well, you know, isn't multimedia going to take over from storytelling?" And but as we've been saying, you know, a novel is different from a, a CD-ROM game, and it, it's a totally different thing, you know, one thing is sort of being in, engaged in the, in, the, in the game you're you're involved in the thing it's you, you're the hero of the story, you've got to find out the, the solve the problems but, and that will never take over from storytelling, I mean the storytelling will never take over from that, with storytelling is you sit back and let you in somebody else's hands while they tell you a story, and they're, they're two different functions so I don't think one thing will ever yeah. replace the other No, they, they, you know, every time a new medium arrives, everything else just sort of shuffles over to make a little bit of space <laughs> for it um, and, uh, but you know, there are there are, there are all sorts of interesting things about you know, interactive storytelling, as this is. And, um, now, Terry disagrees with me, or makes, thinks I make too much of an issue of this, but I think that... <laughs> 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 um, I mean, in many ways... You, know, you, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is a death of sort of print culture and so on. Uh, but uh, it, it isn't anything like that. Because these are the same voices who sort of 300 years ago or 400 years ago were saying, oh, well, the coming of print means the death of storytelling culture. Um, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I have read Oh, no, 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 no. And a lot of people have, have really objected to, what, to Gutenberg's yeah, invention because they said yeah. this is going to you know, kill, you know, kill what, what we now call oral tradition. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't call it that at the time because it's all they had. You, know, you, tend, you don't tend to only call things things to differentiate yeah. and other things. It's funny, as one of the bits Shorzer says about himself when he's describing himself, he says the people think I'm crazy because I sit there reading dumb as any stone because in those days, you know, if you read, you read aloud. You, know, you didn't just read to yourself. You know, to oh, sit right, there yes, staring yes. at the book was a weird thing yeah, to do. Yeah. But, but the thing is that... Uh, you know, in, in the old days, you know, somebody would be telling a story, and the way the audience responded would have an effect on the way in which the story unfolded. Um, I mean, I guess a sort of modern equivalent to that is you go, you know, a, a lot of, well, some stand up comedians who are just particularly good at responding to, if you like, to hecklers. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, a British, or I guess Australian uh, uh, comedian, who I don't know how well no, no, he is in the States, called Barry Humphreys, who is just absolutely brilliant at just soliciting stuff from the audience the whole time and weaving it into the, the act he's then doing and the audience thinks this is amazing he's making it up as he goes along in response to our input and that's exactly the illusion you create uh, or you, you you endeavor to create and sometimes you can get it to work quite well uh, on, on a cd-rom game you know the, um, the, the 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 story is really responsive to you which is not to say that the story will you know 
you, you can choose a happy ending or a sad ending or any of that nonsense. It's just the way it organically unfolds is okay, is, is the difference between like a stage performance and a film. You know, a stage performance is going to change every night according to the audience and how the actors are and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas a film is always the same. Although having said that, you see a film with different audiences, and again, a film seems different. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's true. Yes. But Douglas, this isn't technologically. This is not an easy thing to do. I mean, besides the writing part of yeah. it. Well, that's why it's taken us a long time. <laughs> no, but it's true. But the, the, you know, one of the most creative parts of anything you do on a computer is the beta testing period, when it begins to go out to other people who try to sort of knock it to bits, and then you see what they're doing and try to account for that and sort of rebuild around that. It'll be very interesting once once real sort of storytelling games start to emerge on the web, because uh, you see, a, a CD-ROM in the end, that there comes a point where you have to say, okay, we finished it. We you know we we press the CD-ROM and we put it in the shrink wrap and it's out in the shops. After that, there's nothing more you can do to it. But when, you, when, when that sort of stuff starts to appear on the web, so, you know, as I think is imminent, then, you know, you, you as the author you know, can sit and watch it every night. And sort of start to you can use updates to the CD-ROM game, like, yeah. like they do with, you know, programs. And yeah, you, you, yeah, you can do that, yes. Uh, but it, typically, I mean, the cost of that is such yeah, that it, it tends not yeah. to happen unless, unless you know, major bugs you know, have erupted. But on, on, the, on the web, you know, anything you want to change? Anytime. You know, yeah. My guests today have been Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. Terry's novel, Starship Titanic, is published by Harmony Books. Since this interview, Douglas has published the CD-ROM game Starship Titanic to wonderful reviews. You're listening to the best of Tech Nation. Terry Jones passed away on January 21, 2020, some 20 years after his great friend Douglas Adams. Wherever they are now... It's bound to be rip-roaring fun. Today on Biotech Nation, the subject is the kidney, or rather, when kidneys don't work properly. It's important to know that some 40 million Americans suffer from chronic kidney disease. And yet, this is not one disease, but many. And it can have many causes. First up, I speak with Vinny Jindal, the head of strategy at Riata Pharmaceuticals. Vinny, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me again, Moira. Uh, now remind us, we've been talking about kidney disease, chronic kidney disease. What is it and what causes it? Chronic kidney disease is exactly what it sounds like. It's a disease of your kidneys that's chronic and takes, in a lot of cases, decades to unfold from a healthy kidney state where... Your flow rate of your kidney, the the function of your kidney, of course, is to produce urine. So fluid has to come out of your body through the kidney. So the flow rate of your kidney uh, for a healthy person is around 120, what's called milliliters per minute. That declines over time. And while a healthy 18-year-old may have a, a flow rate of, let's say, 120, by the time you're 60, a healthy flow rate could be 60. So it could be cut in half naturally. But if the decline is faster than that, you have kidney disease. And if it's chronic, you have chronic kidney disease. About 14.8% of Americans have chronic kidney disease. About half of those are due to diabetes. Uh, Another quarter of patients with CKD or chronic kidney disease have a disease of the kidney because of an underlying issue around hypertension. And the rest are a smattering of genetic or autoimmune causes of, of kidney disease. Within that, what can be done about kidney disease? So right now, the standard of care medications are ACE inhibitors and another drug class called ARBs. And they slightly slow the decline of your kidney function, but they don't reverse it. 
So it can it can increase the amount of time you have before your kidneys fail and you need a transplant or you go on dialysis, but it doesn't make your kidneys better. The drug that we're working on called bardoxalone actually seems to improve people's kidneys significantly and then keep them at that elevated state for the longest amount of time that we've studied the drug, which is two years. What does it do that the the current treatments don't do? The kidney is very sensitive to changes in blood pressure. Elevations of blood pressure in the kidney can damage the kidney, and when it's damaged, it functions less well, and that accelerates the amount of time you have until your kidneys fail and you go on dialysis or have a transplant. In contrast, our drug, Bardoxalone, decreases the inflammation that's occurring in the kidney. That inflammation also causes losses of kidney function. So reducing that inflammation can allow the kidney to regain function, and if that inflammation is damped down over time, to, for the patient to not lose function once they've started bardoxone therapy. Now, there are many different kinds of these chronic kidney diseases. I know the area you're working in is something called Alport syndrome. What's that? Alport syndrome is a genetically driven form of chronic kidney disease. Patients are t- typically diagnosed in their early teens, usually because they go for a physical for sports, and blood is detected in their urine, which is an uncommon finding for someone so young. Over the next decade or so, their kidney loses function so rapidly that the median age to dialysis for these patients is 25. So if you can imagine a young person leaving college and just a few years later will have to go to a dialysis center three times a week, three hours at a clip, to get dialyzed. Because of their youth, are they actually they'd be great candidates for a drug because the rest of their system is probably pretty robust. That's right, and that's in large part why we, we chose Alport syndrome to focus on the patients are otherwise healthy. You don't have a lot of what are called comorbidities like cardiovascular disease or obesity that can also cause other health problems. But the findings are really in their kidney and for some patients in their eyes and ears. So otherwise healthy people who have kidney function declines can benefit from Bardoxone by potentially not having to go on dialysis or have a transplant. What we found in our studies is about 90% of people who take Bardoxone have improvements in kidney function, and that function is maintained for the longest course of time we've studied the drug, which is two years. Now, where are you? Phase one, phase two, phase three, about to get approved? <laughs> yeah, hopefully about to get approved. <laughs> Can I approved. buy it this afternoon? Where are you in this? <laughs> we have a phase three study, which is the final phase of testing that typically a drug undergoes before getting FDA approval uh, ongoing. And that trial was fully enrolled by the end of last year. Uh, so we expect to have data in the second half of this year for Alport syndrome. We also recently launched another phase three study for a disease called autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD. Um, that's a phase three study, and we hope that that can also support approval for Bardoxone in that form of kidney disease, which affects about a half a million people in the United States. Um, cysts grow in your kidneys to the point where kidneys can go to the size of footballs. It's really painful and, and uncomfortable for patients who have it. There's only one drug approved for ADPKD that was approved last year. Uh, so for all these forms of CKD, there's very, there are very few treatment options, um, and the underlying processes that make patients lose kidney function are very similar across forms of CKD. So we started with Alport syndrome. We moved on to starting a phase three study in, in ADPKD, and we're hoping to tackle other forms of chronic kidney disease as well. You know, studying these treatments for chronic 
kidney disease. Already you have very sick people or people that have a serious, serious medical condition. How do you study it? Historically, the FDA asked pharma and biotech companies to study kidney drugs by putting patients on drug or placebo and then measuring the number of people who had what they called a hard outcome event, going on dialysis, having a kidney transplant, or dying. Kidney function was never allowed to be measured as uh, a way to get drugs approved in in the United States. Recently, though, and especially for rare forms of, of chronic kidney disease, the FDA is allowing companies to put patients on a therapy or on placebo, treat them for an extended period of time, in our case 48 weeks, and then take them off for a period of time that allows the drug to completely wash out. For us, that's four weeks. If the kidney function of a patient is better after the drug is fully out of their system compared to placebo, then that indicates that that drug may, may be creating a structural improvement in the kidney that's, that indicates what the FDA would call disease-modifying activity. So it's not just the change when you're on the drug, but that the drug is actually changing the function of the organ long-term. That's called a withdrawal endpoint, and that's, what we're, um, that's the endpoint we're studying in our, in our Phase three trial for Alport syndrome. How do you study how well your kidneys work? So the standard way to measure kidney function is measuring what's called the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR. A normal healthy person will have a GFR of about 120, and when your kidney function declines to the point where you're at 15, you typically have a kidney transplant or go on dialysis. How do you measure for an individual? How do you measure for an individual that things have really gotten better with this drug? The kidney's job is to filter fluid. So if the flow rate of the kidney is higher when patients are on therapy, that suggests the kidney is actually functioning better. The result that we're looking for is after patients are treated with therapy for a year, compared to placebo patients, when the drug is withdrawn for four weeks, you compare the placebo patients to the on-drug patients and see if their kidney function is better measuring their flow rate. And this does two things. First, it tells you that the drug may have improved the function of the kidney long-term, may have improved the structure of the kidney, actually, so that the function's even better when patients aren't on the drug. But what it also tells you is that the drug didn't cause any harm. I could give you a drug that makes your kidney function appear like it's better because the flow rate's higher. But that higher flow rate could cause higher pressure in your kidney that can cause damage. If I take that drug away... That masking effect that could occur where your flow rate is higher but it's actually causing damage would also have to go away. So what I've done then is give you a drug that can damage your kidney. If I give that drug to you for a year and I compare you with patients who are not placebo, invariably your kidney function has to be worse than that placebo patients who didn't get that toxic drug for the year. So this, what's called retained benefit analysis of looking at the flow rate after the drug, drug is washed out, lets the FDA see, first of all, did you improve the, the organ, the kidney, in a structural way, and also did you do it without causing harm? That's really interesting. So you're able to continue the, the trial to see if you at least return to normal, and in, in the best case, you have improved because the placebo never received anything that would have damaged it. That's right. Patients with Alport syndrome tend to lose kidney function fairly reliably year after year. So if bardoxolone allows kidney function to remain flat or to just be better than placebo after a year, 
we know that those patients will have lost less kidney function over that time. About 15% of Americans have chronic kidney disease, and the federal government spends 2.6% of its annual budget on treating patients with chronic kidney disease. And that's not 2.6% of the health budget. It's of the overall federal budget. Starting with the Nixon administration, there was a view that no patient with kidney disease should go without treatment in this country. So dialysis is essentially fully paid for by Medicare. And, you know, that 15% of Americans who generally have an underlying disease like cardiovascular disease or diabetes, um, their care can be complicated. And if they develop chronic kidney disease, much of it is covered by the government. And it occurs to me, you know, if this Alport syndrome and, and diseases like it can be helped and keeps these people off dialysis, there's a big impact on the amount of money spent to support it. Certainly for Alport syndrome. And what we've also learned is that the way that Bardoxolone works, it reduces inflammation. Anyone who's had achy joints or a sore back knows that inflammation can cause a problem for your body. And when that's happening in the kidney, you lose kidney function. Independent of what caused the original inflammation, for diabetics, it's high blood sugar. For patients with Alport syndrome, it's a particular mutation. But independent of what caused the inflammation originally, those processes of inflammation are causing declines in kidney function. And so if you can resolve those processes, you can restore some level of kidney function, and you could possibly allow the kidney to keep functioning at that level over time. So if we're able to do that for Alport syndrome or any of the other forms of chronic kidney disease that we're studying and keep those patients away from transplant or dialysis, I agree. It could have significant cost savings for the health system. Well, Vinny, thanks so much for coming in. I hope you come back and keep us updated. I hope you'll have me again. Thanks, Moira. Vinny Jindal is the head of strategy at Riata Pharmaceuticals. Their drug, Bardoxolone, for chronic kidney disease caused by Alport syndrome, received positive results in its Phase three trial in November. The company plans to proceed with the submission of regulatory filings for marketing approval in the United States and internationally. More information is available at riatapharma.com. That's R-E-A-T-A, Riata Pharma, P-H-A-R-M-A, riatapharma.com. Many of us have not heard the term organ fibrosis, and yet it is the cause of mortality in some 50% of human lives. Dr. Darren Kelly is the founder and CEO of Certa Therapeutics. It's extraordinary, isn't it, Moira, because um, when you talk about uh, high levels of mortality, you normally think of something like cancer, but um, when you cause damage to an organ and repeatedly do that, you get scarring, like you do when you cut yourself, and that wound repair is basically a protective mechanism. So when you have um, conditions like kidney disease or diabetes, high blood pressure, or you drink excessively, it causes damage to that organ. And you get scar tissue trying to protect that organ. And then ultimately, if you keep doing that and keep causing injury to that organ, you get fibrosis and inflammation and the organ stops functioning. And so if you think about the leading causes of you know, death in the world, you've got chronic kidney disease, heart failure, liver lung, um, and all of those organs fail due to fibrosis. You just said, along with fibrosis, uh, is inflammation. How does fibrosis go hand-in-hand hand with inflammation in these various organs? Yeah, it's a good point. So normally what happens is when you cause damage, you get inflammation first, and then that 
inflammation builds up and then leads to scar tissue and fibrosis. So it's a progressive disease that occurs over years. Well, aging, not much we can do about that, (laughs) but we can do something about the results of these diseases. I know you're working first in the kidney area. Tell us about organ fibrosis in kidney. Yeah, so uh, much of my research out of the University of Melbourne was actually around the kidney, and um, we spent a long time trying to look at specific targets that would slow down kidney fibrosis because the reason people have kidney failure and then ultimately require dialysis is because of the fibrosis that occurs in that organ. In the US, I think there's about 40 million people with chronic kidney disease. It affects about 13 or 14% of the population, so it's a massive problem. And being able to slow down or stop that fibrosis occurring would then preserve the organ and stop people requiring dialysis. Now, are there kidneys uh, building up this fibrosis because of a specific disease within the kidney, or is this uh, an expression of what's going on in the rest of their system? Um, If you look at diabetic kidney disease, all the chronic kidney diseases basically have inflammation and fibrosis, and so, you know, the the insult at the start might be high glucose or bad uh, elevated blood pressure, lipids, a variety of things that start that process. Um, But ultimately, if you've got chronic kidney disease, you'll be getting fibrosis, and that's how the organ will fail. So what is uh, Serta Therapeutics doing? Uh, So we've developed a a drug which actually has a... um, a unique mechanism of action that can slow or stop fibrosis in the kidney. And we've also shown that it works in other organs like the heart and and lung and even skin. What exactly does it do? So basically what we're doing is we're working with uh, Professor Matthias Kretzler at the University of Michigan, and he's a world leader in precision medicine in the renal space. And so we've been able to show that our compound affects... a series of molecular pathways that cause fibrosis. And so what we've identified is a unique signature that um, causes fibrosis. So basically the cause of fibrosis and our compound obviously um, targets that and, and prevents that occurring. Is this for anyone or do you have to have a particular match here? Uh, it would be a particular match, but considering that most people that have progressive disease, as I was talking about before, well, all of them will have fibrosis, those patients will match. So the match will be targeted to those patients that have fibrosis. Um, And so the good thing about this is rather than targeting all people with kidney disease, um, we're targeting those that have very rapid and progressing disease and getting a lot of scar tissue and those that are most at risk of getting renal failure. Many times when people receive a diagnosis of cancer, they're told whether it is slow-growing or fast-growing. Um, is that the kind of diagnostic that you might receive when you realize you're building up this fibrosis? Um, and is that related to treatment? Uh, exactly. So we have a, a diagnostic. We've, we've been able to map people and look at their genetic makeup and understand which patients are going to get fibrosis and which patients won't get fibrosis. That way we can go ahead with our clinical trial and just treat those patients that have um, organ fibrosis. Um, so everyone doesn't get it. Um, no, that's, that's true. Some people have um, kidney disease that doesn't progress at all. Sometimes it even remisses. Um, but the majority of people, in fact, all the people that end up with end-stage kidney disease will have fibrosis, and that will be the reason their organ fails. Here in the United States, I know you're, you're starting some trials. What's going on here? 
Yeah, so we're going to start some trials in the United States um, next year, early next year. That'd be 2020? 2020, that's correct. And um, it'll be, we're going to use patient advocate groups to engage the patients um, and so they feel empowered and part of the clinical trial. Um, and the cl- clinical trial will be in patients that have a disease that's called focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Um, and that's a very rapid progressing disease. And so we're starting with a disease where we're more likely to see an outcome um, with, a dis- with a drug that stops fibrosis. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis is a very rapid progressing disease where the patients have um, five to ten years usually before they require dialysis compared to diseases like diabetic kidney disease where the progression is slower and usually takes 20 years. So in this patient's subset, they get a lot of protein in their urine um, and ultimately fibrosis causes the end-stage kidney disease. So our phase two clinical trial is using a once-daily tablet, which makes it very easy for patients to to take this drug. Um, They would be on the tablet for the rest of their life. But, of course, the benefit is that they don't have to go on dialysis um, or require a transplant. How will you know that the medication is working? Uh, The good thing about the kidney is it's quite simple to measure kidney function. Um, And so that can be done with a simple blood test. And we can very quickly show that the drug is actually having an effect at um, improving kidney function. And what are you looking for? How do you know it's any better? The unique thing about the kidney is it's a, it's a fabulous filtering network that keeps our blood clean. And uh, when it begins to fail, you get uh, a build-up of toxins and you start to feel quite sick. And, and um, that's the early stages of kidney disease. So this drug will stop that feeling, stop that build-up of waste in the blood um, and, and obviously stop people requiring dialysis. In the normal setting, um, the kidney is very clever at filtering blood and making sure that um, the proteins that are required for the body to survive are kept inside the body. And once the cells start to break down, uh, those proteins actually leak into the urine. And then you can actually measure them in urine and look at that as a marker of kidney function or declining kidney function. So as the cells start to break down and you get scar tissue, you lose the good things Um, and you can measure those proteins actually in the urine, and that is a marker of the declining kidney function. What exactly is your drug doing? Is it breaking down the fibrosis in there? Is it stopping it from creating again? That's a really good question. So the drug actually stops the fibrosis forming. It doesn't break it down because some of the fibrosis that occurs is important in terms of protecting the structure of the of the kidney. So you're just hoping to stop the progression of, of the damage at this yep. point. So the key thing about that, most of the kidney function loss later on is where you get end-stage kidney disease. Okay, so you're trying to inter- interact with people that have been diagnosed fairly early in this process and stop and keep that at bay. That's correct, exactly. Well, Darren, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back and see us again. Thanks a lot, Moira. Thanks. Dr. Darren Kelly is the founder and CEO of Serta Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at certatherapeutics.com. That's C-E-R-T-A, certatherapeutics.com. For Biotechnation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. 
The director of technical production is Monte Carlos, and audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.